To ship, of course. It's time for the Ship Show, where we talk about build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. Tonight is a bit of a special episode. I'm uh, with Sasha this evening in real life, taping from an undisclosed location in the Silicon Valley. How's it going, Sasha? It's going pretty good. You're you're out here for uh, a big chunk of time this time, right? You've been I am. you've been traveling a lot lately, yeah. Here for two weeks, but um, yeah, and generally traveling every week. Yeah, that's hard. It's, that's hard, but it can be fine, right? It's, well, it beats the, the foot of snow that got dumped on Minnesota last week while I was <laughs> and, here. Yeah, and you brought your coffee I maker did. in the I brought my I brought my coffee maker and my, my coffee grinder with me so that I can have a little bit of my own. A little bit of home away from home. So I don't have to go find a coffee shop every morning instead. <laughs> well, so tonight's episode, we're discussing uh, PaaS or Platform as a Service. Uh, what are the pros and cons of PaaS? What do you need to do organizationally before considering building, supporting, and using Platform as a Service as a development tool? Brandon Burton will be joining uh, the panel to look at the issue with us and provide some data that he found in his uh, research of PaaS, so we can hopefully help answer the question, PaaS, play, or passe. But first, uh, news and views, as we always do. Seth linked us to a new build tool called Tup that actually is sort of a make replacement, uh, and it uses a database. I found it really interesting. In fact, it's funny, I had a friend, Ben, if you're listening, this sounds like the tool you were wanting to build. But basically, it creates a database uh, of all of the objects, and it uses kind of a Git-style folder where there's a hidden directory in the top of the source tree. And it creates a database, and it runs similar to make in terms of uh, the types of uses that it's it's useful for. It will do you know your standard bunch of C files and turn them into O files, and then turn them into your program. But there's some very compelling graphs. I guess you know it intercepts file I/O, so it knows what the dependencies look like because it actually is looking at the file I/O. Uh, so rules don't ever come out of date and that sort of thing. There's some really interesting graphs of it versus make in terms of uh, scanning the directories and that sort of thing. And he did some tests on like you know, one file and 10 files and a thousand files and, and uh, to sort of test this out. Did you see that's linked to this, Sasha? I did. And my first thought was, I wonder who named this? <laughs> yeah. And there's, what were they thinking when they named it? And there, possibly they didn't know what they were thinking. Uh, yeah, there, there may be an Urban Dictionary <laughs> reference to look up for. Okay, I should Google it. that. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing is, I don't really have any idea. I mean, make just make stuff, right? So I don't really know why you would replace it because... Except to get rid of the whole concept. Well, so you know what's interesting? Make is one of those tools that that, uh, we often talk about that's like 20 years old and everybody hates it, but everybody uses it because there wasn't a better replacement. And people used to say that about CVS and Subversion, right? That that those tools have been around forever. We would never use anything else until sort of Git Mercurial came along and Mm -hmm. turned it on its head. Um, what I think was really, really I was reading the uh, the how-to or the, the docs, and it was saying any number of iterations of updates always produces the same output as it would if everything was built anew. So um, you don't have to ever pull a fresh source tree, nor do you ever have to do something like make clean. And it actually says, should you find otherwise, you found a bug in TUP, not in your TUP file, and you should notify the mailing list. So in other words, if you've ever had this problem, like if you've ever looked at make stuff where you'll have maybe four C files and they all get compiled to object files and then linked, right? And then maybe you delete one C file because you don't need it anymore. If you don't run make clean, that O file is still going to be around. So you get the wrong thing because the C file is no longer there. I just reprovisioned my box. 
<laughs> that's a little heavy weight for <laughs> for compiling your program. These, I mean, you know, this is infrastructure for native build stuff and, and developers working on their desktop. So I just thought it was interesting, and I actually appreciated Seth shooting it to me. There's a bunch of use cases. And actually, I was looking at the syntax of the top file. It looks pretty similar to make files. There's some major differences, but I mean, if you're used to writing make files, it won't be a huge thing like scones or some of the other make replacements. It won't be totally confusing. So something uh, we, we were pointing to this week that is up your alley, the Solo Wizard. Did you see Did you see? I did see that. That's actually been out there a few months. Oh, really? Um, I hadn't seen it. I, I think it's really I, cool. I did see the little Twitter storm that happened about it. I think that's really neat that it's getting some more publicity because yeah. I think it's it's a lovely tool. And I actually have kind of gone through and looked at it and looked at the checkboxes and things, but um, I have fully configured Macs and I'm not touching them right. at this point. And, um, well, I just think it's cool. I, I think it's a real kind of great use case. We always talk about infrastructure as code. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those cases where it's a it's actually super super useful for normal people, right? People right. don't normally provision their box, their dev box, but it's a great idea. And for people that don't know it, know it, it's solowizard.com. And when you go to it and just scroll down the page, you'll see a bunch of checkboxes. And it's for Mac right now only. Right. Um, so what you have to, what you know about this actually is that do you remember when we talked about provisioning our uh, yeah. provisioning mm-hmm. workstations it, yeah. last year. Yeah. So the stuff that we talked about in there, the Pivotal cookbook and right. things like that. It's based on that, it's, right? They just basically wrapped it. Not, and I'm not putting this down at all. I think it's super fantastic that they did this. They, they just basically wrapped existing stuff with a GUI. Yeah. So well, that's actually, that's actually, I think, the useful part is right. some, when we were talking about it, I, don't, I think it was easy to miss how big a deal that actually could be without all the options. Like you can go down and like adding Erlang or Redis is like click a button, generate my thing, mm-hmm. run my thing. And it, it is so, I, I thought this was really interesting. Well, and the other thing um, it does is it, really it, does, it doesn't just make you, it doesn't just configure your workstation, but it actually generates all of the files for you to examine first if you're anal about that stuff, right? Which a right. lot of us are in this business. Right. So it doesn't just go off and configure your workstation. It actually shows you what it's going to do before it does it. So I think it's super. That's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah, that that is uh, a super. Or at useful, least it shows yeah. you the code it's going to use. Right, right, yeah, and and again, it's using uh, Chef Solo to do that. So I want to know where the Windows one is. <laughs> That's what I need. I need well, Clickbox for Visual Studio. We could talk about that because yeah. I have done some Windows automation. You can yeah. do it for workstations. Oh no, I'm sure you can. It's just I want the website. Can Visual Studio be uh, installed no, without no. any kind of? Um, Knows. Without any kind of in- input, so can we actually silently install everything? I don't know, but I know I, I was actually looking at this the other day. There are chef recipes for Visual Studio, so I think somebody's done some work. But that I, I don't want to have to look that up. I was googling for it. I want the little click box Visual Studio, and then so you don't want to actually do the work. You want yeah, I don't want to do any work. I just okay. want it to work. Isn't that what chefs all? No, somebody's got to do the work. Yeah, yeah, no, no. but yeah, that, no, that's really cool. Then our last story tonight, there was a story going around the, the Twitter spheres this last week on how Facebook prepared to be hacked. We'll link to the, the full story uh, in the uh, show notes. But um, one By thing mentally that, torturing one of their employees. Which well, they did it a couple sad. times. Yeah, they, so they had an internal... I mean, the, the yeah, the, the, the summary of the story is they had an internal team a couple of times that actually broke into themselves just to figure out how to respond to an incident before it was actually an incident. By the way, I think this is actually, you know, we, we talk a lot in DevOps about being operational. And I think the lesson of rebuilding that server you didn't know was important until it's crashed. Like, this is a great sort of take on that. It's like, we didn't wait. You know, we get attacked all the time and we think we're okay. But what if somebody actually succeeded? What would the team do? 
and it's really training your people to do that. So that part of the story is interesting. The other part I wanted to bring up, which I thought was was uh, interesting about the way the attack went down, is uh, they used a live zero-day vulnerability on an engineer's desktop. They won't say which one it was, but I'm going to guess it's Java. I'll just throw that out there. Could have been Ruby. Yeah, uh, it could have been, but he clicked on a web browser. Oh, link. okay, yeah. So, or or yeah. sorry, a link in an email. Who okay. clicks on email links? Well, this developer did, but <laughs> but so here's here's the point that I thought was interesting. He said, we got onto the developer system and then put a change into his PHP code and pushed it live. That affects a billion users. The, and now that developer is in therapy for the next 10 years yes. because he's just been... Just this company is so mean to him. <laughs> Seriously. But what I wanted to say is I thought that was a really interesting point to make about continuous delivery and build pipelines. There is sort of an idea uh, in the DevOps world where uh, I think GitHub called it uh, democratizing shipping, where everybody can ship and push live and that should be really easy. I mean, you know, we can discuss the pros and cons and, and, and uh, the, the difficulties in getting that pipeline set up and all the aspects to it. But what I find interesting is that in terms of an attack surface, they all they had to do was get one of Facebook's 2,000 engineers or however many people they have these days to click on an email link that had a zero-day exploit and it was the code was live. Well, you know, it gave them live. access to his laptop, right? And then they changed his code that way? Yeah, and then, but, so and they, then they pushed... I, well, I, I, it, it's unclear whether or not they also were able to push it, like in the background, or he, they waited until he That pushed. would take some systems genius, and then my next thought is, is you would, should be having code reviews of things before they go to... Right, the so, that, so that's... Yeah, that's, the, I think, the interesting point, that the part of the story, and, and you know, maybe uh, at some future time when we're actually do an episode that looks more at build pipelines and maybe, you know, have someone we can ask them about that. But that's always something I wonder. I'm, I'm not saying you should have a gatekeeper for the gatekeeper's sake. In fact, that's kind of a broken model in a lot of ways. But who is watching the code flowing out the door and how much do they know about it and code reviews and how right. is that all instituted? It's really easy to create a pipeline that anybody can push. But, you know, what happens when you have an attack? You know, it does increase your attack surface. Like huge, hugely. But definitely go read the the um, the article. They were also talking about one of the, the the black hats that was internal to the team, like hid laptops behind filing cabinets and things like that. And so it was like sniffing the Wi-Fi and connect or like it was connected to the physical network and then broadcasting the Wi-Fi. Like there's some really like Cold War spy. Interesting. Yeah. Next up, we'll be talking uh, PaaS platform as a service with Brandon Burton. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So tonight we wanted to take a look at PAZs, or or is that PAZI? Anyway, PAZ is Platform as a Service, and to help us do that, Brandon Burton, aka Solars on Twitter, is joining the panel tonight. Welcome to The Ship Show, Brandon. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. So briefly, for those that don't know you, why don't you tell us a, a bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So I've uh, been doing uh, web operations stuff for about six years now. Uh, Seven years, actually, uh, since I moved to L.A. Been immersed in computers and Linux and open source since high school. Got interested in cloud stuff, you know, a few years ago, Amazon launched. Very quickly, I kind of saw, you know, what the, the potential for that. So, been involved in a lot of cloud stuff, uh, platform and service stuff as that came out. Been able to actually take a lot of that and uh, my interest there and do, combine that with uh, my role as a web operations engineer at Mozilla. I joined Mozilla a little over a year ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you've been doing a lot of interesting things there. And that's kind of what uh, some of my experience there will come into what we're going to talk about tonight. 
Okay. A lot of people may know you uh, as the person behind Hang Ops. Is that right? Oh yes, that's true. I guess yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, and we'll talk about that in a sec. But uh, but yeah, that's that. People may be thinking, I know that name, and that's that's the other thing that you do. But but uh, let's start the the past discussion by contextualizing it a little bit. People may have probably heard of, of SaaS, software as a service, and then there was sort of YaaS or EaaS, infrastructure as a service, and and now PaaS as is the buzzword. So when you're talking about Paz, like what are some examples of, of a Paz, and what let's let's kind of contextualize for listeners. Sure. So yeah. So at a at a high level, there are kind of like three levels of of, of services you can get out there in, in the cloud, if you will. There's infrastructure as a service, IaaS, which is you know what Amazon's EC2 is, uh, Google's compute stuff, uh, Joint's uh, cloud stuff, and that basically you're getting uh, VM storage, networking, you know, load balancing, some other kind of services on demand. And then there's platform as a service. And the idea with platform as a service is kind of the middle layer between infrastructure structure and SaaS, which SaaS is software as a service, kind of at the top is, you know, you're getting like QuickBooks as a service or, you know, Exchange or some kind of accounting software or Wiki or whatever, any kind of a software. So in the middle there is, is PaaS, platform as a service. And the idea is that you're, it's it's mostly geared towards developers. So you're an application developer, maybe you're developing a Python application, you're at a Django app. A PaaS offering will give you a service where you have, typically it's a command line interface where you're able to sort of cr- create an application defined by a URL, maybe a subdomain or or uh, your own custom domain, and you're able to push code up to the, ser- the PaaS service, and it will deploy that into a sort of language and framework appropriate container, uh, as well as you're able to, on demand, create different kinds of services, storage, databases, memory caches like Memcache or Redis, those kind of things. Probably the most well-known one is Heroku, which uh, is, is uh, they right. actually use you know EC2 for their infrastructure, and they started as a, as as focused as a, as a Ruby pass, providing Ruby developers an easy way to get sort of deploy Ruby applications and get Memcache, Redis, Postgres type services for their apps. And so also like the one that comes to mind, Engine Yard, would they would fall into that category as well? Yes, they have yeah. a I think a couple different PaaS offerings that they they built. I know that they had a, they you know they started yeah actually they were definitely an early sort of Ruby focused PaaS. They they sort of blurred the line between infrastructure and platform stuff along the way. And then I believe they acquired a company that focused on PHP and, and Nginx. Or, or, or JS. So, so they have a, a couple of offerings in that vein too. Yes. Okay. So, so you've been looking at PaaSes for a while and and kind of doing some analysis on them. So, before we talk about that, like, so what piqued your interest in narrowing in on sort of the platform level? I mean, what was the the reason behind kind of doing all of of the research that you've been doing? Well, I just at a basic level, I think that platform as a service, as an interface to infrastructure for developers, makes a lot of sense. Giving them command line interface that ties to some level in with their version control system, Git or Mercurial, and giving them kind of a self-service interface to be able to push code, create environment, create and delete environments, self-service ad hoc, as well as create and destroy services, you know, data services, I think is, is very powerful. And that's kind of what struck my interest. You know, Heroku is something I've used for a lot of my own thing, like small things on and off, because it is very easy. I don't have to worry about running a VPS and, and those kind of things. And so I think that building that kind of a service offering is, is as infrastructure folks is really powerful in enabling uh, developers to do self-service. And I think also that sort of ties into a lot of the DevOps culture ideas in building strong shared tools that uh, developers and operations can use together. So do you think platform as a service is sort of the concept is kind of a, a logical extension of cloud-based services in general or, or the next sort of development? Totally. 
So I think that, uh, you know, obviously cloud is, can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but I think the original idea with the cloud computing was sort of uh, virtual machines and storage and networking on demand. That was really the, that was the initial, AWS was initially, it was EC2 and it was S3 and it was EBS. And, and I think what we're seeing is that early on, SaaS was probably the first thing that, that there was as an abstraction, sort of shipping software to people's desktops, you know, you can run it over the internet. Uh, and then sort of the bottom layer of uh, utility infrastructure became available. And so that sort of opened up the opportunity to put some abstractions on top of that. And that's where PASS fits in and is, is it provides an additional layer of abstractions for people who are more focused on writing code, shipping code, and they have need for a, a fairly reliable infrastructure, but don't necessarily want to have to worry about it themselves. So that I think is where the opportunity, I think that's where a lot of where Heroku got their start was they saw the opportunity to, you know, provide something that can be scalable and fairly highly resilient to individual like machine failure and also give developers some abstractions so they can sort of focus on, you know, what are the services, what are my metrics and get those in a you know, self-service way. So you you sort of mentioned this before about Paz is sort of enabling kind of the DevOps culture side of that and allowing developers to to interact sort of closer to the, the operation side of things. And it sounds like you, you've looked at a bunch of different platforms as a service, correct? And sort yes. of, yeah. And but but one of the ones you know uh, that you sort of mentioned is like it's not just external. It's not just the Heroku's or the Engine Yards or or what have you. You can actually build a PaaS internally within your own organization. Is that right? Yes, that's true. And that's actually a big part of what I and and the, the web ops team that I'm a part of have been doing for the last year or so in Mozilla is uh, in late 2011, uh, through our kind of our, we have a, a group called Mozilla Labs. They started an initiative called Project Petrie. The idea was that uh, wanted to sort of uh, explore some of the trends in, in both infrastructure and platform as a service ideas and see what would be a good fit for things inside Mozilla. And uh, WebOps, we saw the platform as a service as being very, very powerful for kind of the way we were doing things. In many ways, we were doing a lot of manual work that a uh, platform as a service would would abstract away and automate. And so we started looking at uh, various in-house options. Um, probably the three most well-known ones are um, Cloud Foundry, which uh, was uh, started as a VMware project. It's actually been recently spun out into their Pivotal uh, Pivotal Ventures or Pivotal Innovations uh, uh, initiative. They kind of spun it out a little bit, but Cloud Foundry is one of the early ones designed to be sort of a multi-tenant platform agnostic uh, platform as a service, mm -hmm. supporting multiple languages and runtimes. Then uh, Red Hat acquired a company and renamed the project OpenShift, made it open source last year. So those are the two big open source ones. And then ActiveState, which you might be familiar with from, you know, ActivePython, ActivePerl. They saw kind of that where things are going with platform as a service. And so they started a project based on Cloud Foundry called Staccato, which uh, designed to be sort of a, a product turnkey platform as a service offering for the enterprise. And so we took a look at what, you know, what was out there open source and commercial and uh, did some evaluations. And then at the time we found that uh, Staccato was the most sort of turnkey for our needs and also supporting the 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 breadth of you know language runtimes and, and data services that we needed. So, Brandon, um, for for benefit of our viewers, what would you say distinguishes those kinds of platforms as a service offerings from, say, something that they may be more familiar with, like OpenStack or CloudStack or something that is similar but different? How would you how would you differentiate those? Yeah, so I would say the main difference is that uh, they're really more focused on giving developers an interface to deploy code to a runtime, you know, some kind of an application container. It might be a uh, mod PHP plus Apache for PHP or UWSGI or Unicorn, Thin or Mongrel uh, for Python or Ruby. And so the focus with uh, Platform as a Service from an infrastructure layer is it's deploying to an operating system and then spawning n number of application containers based on your configuration that are running. So it really doesn't care what's under it. The operating system 
provider, whether it be bare metal or VM in some kind of an infrastructure service is is sort of, it doesn't care, I guess is, is the best way to put it. Just, so it's just more, abstracted away, I guess. Exactly, it's abstracted away. And so, you know, a lot of these uh, you can run on your own hardware or you can, you know, they provide VM images, run on HP's cloud, EC2, etc. So, so that that's the, and that's the the big difference where I draw the line between sort of infrastructure, IASS, <laughs> sorry, IAAS, and PaaS, PaaS, is, is where a PaaS doesn't care about the operating system. It's really geared towards I have code that I want to ship. I know I need a specific, you know, I, I need a a runtime that's friendly to my code, and then I need certain data services, but I don't want to have to worry about running my own VMs and using configuration management, doing my own monitoring. Ideally, a PaaS offering is going to sort of bake a lot of those things into it, monitoring and metrics. and. So scaling. now I'm curious, you guys have implemented Staccato? Yeah, so we, we did. We, we, we settled on Staccato last, uh, it's Q4 of last year, and we're in, we're kind of calling a developer beta right now. We've built a development cluster. Uh, we've opened it internally to developers to start playing with. We're kind of working on figuring out sort of the best workflow practices for deploying our Django apps. We, we have a lot of Django apps. Kind of, we have a, a set way of, of doing Django. It's kind of been packaged up into a library we call Play-Doh. So there's a, a few, you know, sort of it's a customized set of standards that we do on top of Django. And so just uh, sort of mapping that on top of how you deploy Python apps to, to Django as well as with PHP and Node.js. Kind of putting those on there and figuring out, you know, handling shared secrets and sort of moving from our current methods of deployment into that and security and you know shared access to applications all those kind of things but so we're working through that but our plan is to uh, get actually you know production web apps running on it in the next quarter or two have you so, have you um, have you done any other implementations prior to this so have you done any openstack or anything like that implementations because I'm curious to know how it's been different for you well so the thing with uh, with staccato is it 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 sort of doesn't care what the hypervisor is, so we're actually just running it on a VMware vSphere. We haven't seen enough demand, I would say, within main Mozilla to really do like VMs on demand. Um, uh, our labs, uh, sysadmins actually have deployed a small eucalyptus cloud there, because within labs there are certain you know people who, who want, I, I'd like a VM to do what I want with. But for the most part, our the demand we're fulfilling within WebOps is more just, I want to be able to push my, my code and use some services. So we're at sort of a, a higher level of need. We don't necessarily need a cloud stack or an open stack, though I've, I've played with both in, in, in my own time. And, and I think they're great products if if you have a lot of demand for people who want to be able to get their own you know operating systems and, and work at the operating system level. We're focused at sort of more of a just deploying a code level. And then you're paying for, for VMware yeah, as, we your, already, as your underlying infrastructure. Yeah, but that's what, that's what it's, our, it's our standard virtualization platform within Mozilla. Okay. So we've already, okay. you know, we've already have large uh, VMware clusters and guys that that's what they do is VMware NetApp for us. Okay. I mean, because the way, the way you're talking, it, you make it sound and to somebody who wouldn't know any better that, well, you don't need anything underneath because all you have is the pads, right? And that's, that's what the devs see. You still, something has to be on demand there, right? Whether or not the developers need it on demand or not, that's that's something else. But uh, right. the underlying infrastructure still has to be there. You still need the, the collection of, of infrastructure that provides the top level. Yes, that's correct. And so in our case, right now, Staccato only ships as VM images and they have VM images foremost, pretty much all the major hypervisors. So since we already had a significant investment in VMware infrastructure, right. uh, we chose to do that. They're targeting, supporting uh, bare metal for some of their roles, and that's what you know we're sort of actually looking to is um, we have a pretty significant hardware footprint that we're able to use. So we're sort of looking at, ideally, we would move the roles that run our application containers onto actual 
hardware. And so in general, our sort of philosophy at Mozilla is, um, you know, we tend to run things on, on big hardware when we ha when we have it available, and smaller things run on VMware. Huh? But um, but that's uh, just sort of the fit that was with our environment. The guys actually have Staccato running on HP Cloud. Uh, HP is actually, their pass offering is going to be based on Staccato as well. And so in that case, sort of the health manager role of Staccato actually has support for doing a, a certain amount of auto-scaling. It supports EC2 OpenStack and VMware's APIs for that. So there actually is a certain amount of ability to, to take advantage of sort of dynamic footprints. But in our case, uh, at least right now, we're sort of focused on providing a static footprint and using monitoring capacity planning to keep our footprint ahead of demand and not being as um, as dynamic yet, if that makes sense. Interesting. Okay. Well, so one thing you mentioned that I, I kind of want to talk about it because it seems like it's one of the, the issues that you kind of see people running into, and I'm curious how you guys have solved it. You know, you're talking about, you know, allowing developers to do deployments of code and things to that in the owner environment and have that kind of be on demand as a service, right? Yes. Yeah. And you were saying that you're just starting to kind of figure out, okay, well, because you said in this quarter you're going to be actually putting some of these sites that developers are working on actually into production. And so I was wondering if you could actually talk about that a little bit, about kind of what issues you run into and when you're kind of developing a past, how to uh, smooth that road out a little bit from, hey, you know, I'm a developer, I'm going to write a Django app, you know, I sit down and I write it in a week because I have an idea, so I have the infrastructure to do that. And then somebody says... Oh, that's a that's a great app. Let's put it into production. You know, how do you smooth from the platform side that road so that when you actually put it into production, it doesn't fall over or doesn't fall so, apart? So, at least with sort of in the, the culture and the workflow at Mozilla, um, that process doesn't really change as we introduce a pass. There's already a process where in the past people would they they'd need an environment. We might give them a dedicated set of operating systems or, you know, we have shared clusters that IT manages. So sort of their process to get something from, say, labs into, you know, getting an IT-managed dev stage and prod environment is, is kind of the same without the pass. In some ways, the pass makes it easier because we're actually able to give them the ability to make dev and, and sandbox on demand. And then the sort of the restrictions in terms like for an app to go into production for us it has to pass a security review there's QA gets involved you know there's a, a certain uh, workflow with some gates if you will before that can actually go live yeah so uh, actually so you mentioned a couple are there any other gates because that's actually kind of I think would be interesting for people that are looking at has and, and converting to that model like what are some of the things that you go through on your road from developer deploys to a PaaS and then it actually goes is is world-facing. Sure. You, so, mentioned, you mentioned security and QA. Yeah, those are the two, I would say, big ones that are, you know, between any app going into sort of IT-supported production. Because there is a there is sort of a self-service do-your-own-stuff stuff now with, with in our labs environment where things aren't as tightly restricted. But to go into sort of IT-managed dev stage and fraud, um, you know, generally, you know, they'll be given dev and that's where it'll, you know, security review and things will happen, QA will happen. And ideally, stage is where things are just deployed to right before it goes to production for testing. So there's a defined workflow. Pass doesn't change that. Really, in some ways, pass makes it easier to get dev. And then stage and QA is, is kind of just going to be treated the same as it would be, you know, on a, an operating system managed by IT. What really changes is the tools that developers are using to push. For example, most of our major sites right now use an app that we've built called Chief, which basically gives the developer a web interface with a couple fields they fill out with their name, a password, and like the hashtag, or not hashtag, but the git hash, or a, a, a branch name, and then they click a button that says go. So sort of a one-click uh, continuous deployment tool. So for the most part, as things move into where it's hosted on a PaaS instead of hardware, what changes is that instead of using a web app, they're using the command line interface to the PaaS. 
So, so fundamentally, that's really what changes, just sort of some of the tools that they're using. And along the way, actually, things get... They can actually do a little more on their own without needing web ops and IT involved. So I uh, was wondering, too, if you could talk a little bit about do you guys do load testing or, or deal with load issues from the standpoint, if you have an application in a PaaS that you've built or maybe even one that you're actively developing and then it t- it's time to actually go deploy it, how do you kind of make sure that uh, it'll scale the way you need it to scale or that you have you have multiple heads talking to you know multiple instances of the app on different parts of the PaaS talking to a database that that works the way you expect? Do you, do you kind of look at any of that or is that, is that even a concern that uh, you find you're running into? We do do it some. Um, a lot of that stuff our, our QA guys actually kind of take care of, you know, in addition to sort of doing uh, integration tests, things like Jenkins and Selenium and, and Sauce Labs. We do, they do a certain amount of, of load testing. And, uh, you know, otherwise, we, we sort of try to build the infrastructure to, to be highly scalable and sort of over-provision on resources, if you will. And we apply, you know, some of the, the common patterns, right? Things go through CDNs. We do sort of network edge caching, you know, like a reverse proxy like Varnish, our load balancers which uh, a product uh, Riverbed acquired called Zeus, now Stingray, uh, does an in-memory caching. So, you know, we, we, we insulate things at, at the, kind of, with a couple layers of caching. Um, otherwise, things are just kind of over-provisioned. So for the most part, we don't always do s- exhaustive app-by-app load testing, as, as in general, we find our capacity is able to, to keep ahead of things. Sure, yeah. And a lot of times too, it's that is one of the beautiful things about PaaS, right? Is that you, if you have an app that's useful, but but it starts out small, you don't always need to do the load testing up front. But but for the because you were talking about some of the other apps that you're looking, do you, can you tell us? Uh, do you know which apps are kind of going to be first through the gauntlet to be sort of apps that are out to the public? We don't really know yet, to be honest. It it, it some of it's coming down to which teams have sort of time to, you know, do the workflow and, and change deployment. But I think ideally, you know, right now, you know, we have a lot of small sites that sort of run on what we call our generic cluster. Just, uh, you know, sets of Memcache and Celery and Apache ModWizGi and MySQL and kind of like, you know, all these clusters, but each of the services are all shared by a bunch of our smaller sites. Ideally, we'd like to see all of those move into into the paths. I don't know if you know, some of our largest sites like Mozilla.org and add-ons and, and support uh, would necessarily makes sense because there is a certain um, cost to, you know, right now, especially right, it's running in VMs, so there's a small performance cost that. And then with Staccato's model, each application container is actually an LXC, a Linux containers container within the with, within the application host. So there's a couple, like, sort of like, you know, a couple layers of virtualization almost. LXC is very lightweight, but it serves as a, as a containerization. So there's a couple layers of abstraction there that each has its own performance penalty a little bit. And so for most apps, uh, that isn't an issue. There are certain where they're big enough scale that they would stay sort of stay bare metal or at least dedicated posts. Um, okay. So one thing you sort of talked about, you had mentioned this, that there's, and we talked about this before, a, a series of gates that kind of go through before, and, and you use the phrase, it's it's IT supported in production, right? Yes. Yeah, so I, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about, because that is one of the whole things about DevOps, right, is that the devs are doing support or, or you know, that there's a, a closer connection between those two groups. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how do you figure out sort of if you have an ops or an IT group supporting the applications, how do you kind of uh, make sure that the operational requirements are passed off from the developer? Do you find that the PaaS helps with that? Do you have that as, as some some document that gets filled out or how do you address those those issues? So I would say, you know, at a high level, um, They've just sort of been standards, I guess you could say, that we've we've met. I don't know how much of it's like written down per se. It's just you know we, there's expectations. You know, a lot of things that, that we do, especially in, you know we 
IT manages. There are a lot of things we do to, to the hosts, the operating system, things to ensure sort of security and monitoring and those things. And that's a big part of what we look at as IT managed, you know, is, is, is things are just a little more uh, tightly covered because, you know, especially in our case, you know, anything under Mozilla.org, right, we actually do security bounties. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're sort of in the, in the limelight. You know, people are constantly sending garbage at us, trying to break in, you know, because, you know, they want to get, maybe they want to get something into Firefox, right, because that could be a big thing. So that's a lot of what comes with sort of IT managed is we have stricter guidelines on what, uh, what can be installed and where it can come from and you know like if developers want to include a package there has to be a certain amount of vetting a lot of the developers do themselves and from a from a cultural point of view i would say the developers are as invested in the success of the site and understand things like performance constraints and security constraints and and the level of access that they're given uh to you know like say being given like sudo right the responsibility that comes with that in a way and and also you know we've over the last year we've given most of our major sites the ability to deploy code on their own so we've sort of seen you know the developers they're careful with that in a way like they understand the ramifications of you know they don't want to do a push that could then get somebody paged and then maybe they're called so a lot of it comes down to sort of there's just there's a there's a shared culture there where um you know it is kind of managing things we do give read read access sort of ssh and in some a lot of cases sudo to certain groups to to their clusters but it's sort of a it's just there's not a lot of like bureaucracy around it if you will like there's not a lot of like written out like you know run books and this and that for most of it it's just sort of more of a we're all working towards the same goal we're all technology professionals who sort of under understand we want to keep things running and we're, we're careful and so a lot of that i feel like sort of drives how things work now and i don't know that the past will change that in many ways i think it's sort of too early to, to tell but i don't think it'll fundamentally change that i think it just changes some of the tools that the it runs and some of the tools that developers use that makes sense. <laughs> yeah yeah it sounds like a lot of the issues that that an organization might run into deploying this kind of stuff you you had uh, already solved that previously kind of just because of the way Mozilla's culture is, but it certainly would be something that if, if somebody was coming up with a path they'd, they'd want to look at is is how to deal with that, even if even if the answer is, well, we hire for that as part of our culture, right? Is that, yes, I, yeah. I agree with that. Um, you know, I've, I've done a couple talks uh, this year on how we scale our sites, and a lot of that always ends up on, like, you know, what about DevOps? What about culture? You know, how do you, you know, you're giving developers tools to deploy in the staging and production themselves, you know, well, you know, are they carrying the pager? You know, how to, how did you like uh, convince them to be careful? You know, some of those questions, like you can tell, like in some some environments, uh, there's a there's a big silo, and and you, there's a it seems like there's a culture in some places of developers sort of do toss things over the wall and and have no understanding or insight into how things are going to run. You know, there's that image with the little girl in front of the house <laughs> on fire, and it yeah. says, you know worked in dev ops problem now like kind of that tongue-in-cheek uh, some people you know i think definitely have that and you know i in, in trying to answer that i try not to be glib but at a certain point i do think we haven't had to do that a lot from a bureaucratic point of view or, or you know it pushing a style of working i think a lot of it has just been the devs and it in mozilla have the same values i guess and so the culture there's a cultural fit there where a lot of stuff that sort of I think we call DevOps culture has evolved organically, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So let me let me ask this, you know, to to listeners uh, listening out there that are like, you know, this sounds really cool, or or you know, this sounds like something I'd be interested in sort of exploring more to look at getting up and running in my environment. Where would you suggest they sort of start evaluating and start like looking at what it would take to do this in their organization? Sure. I'd start with one sort of looking at what your existing infrastructure and automation is. Um, for example, uh, you know, Sasha asked about. OpenStack earlier. If you're in an organization, say like Living Social, uh, where 
their Strictly Ruby. They built that sort of an in-house platform-as-a-service style infrastructure on top of OpenStack, but uh, just focused on Ruby applications. So, you know, they, they had one language runtime and one database to support and then potentially a couple more, you know, services like a memcache or Redis around the side. Uh, I know, but I know they're mainly Ruby and MySQL. So, you know, they took a look at it and they only needed to support a couple stacks. So it was easy for them to sort of take an infrastructure as a service tool and add some automation on top of it to give them their own platform as a service. So that's something to think about is that potentially if you have a lot of automation maybe already with, you know, OpenStack or maybe just KVM and Gennetti, uh, config management, you know, you've got Chef or Puppet well-tuned. You might not need to adopt a platform-as-a-service product wholesale. You know, that's one of the sort of the wins if you're in a, a highly heterogeneous environment of something like uh, OpenShift or Staccato or Cloud Foundry is that it already supports a wide range of both language platforms and, uh, you know, data services. So I, that's the first thing I do is sort of look at, you know, what, what are you running? And what are you doing? And, and you know, do I maybe need to adopt a, a, a sort of PaaS offering, you know, in a box? Or could I maybe just sort of like look at some of the, the patterns and abstractions that a platform as a service would give? And then maybe I can just build some tools within my own environment to do that. Well, well and so I think you, you actually mentioned this, so it's, uh, these, these DevOps buzzwords, and I think it's actually really important that you did. So you could sort of mentioned you already have an automation story sort of well thought out. You already have a configuration management story sort of well thought out. Source control, because a lot of these pads is right. They actually, there's no like zipping up what's on your desktop and then throwing that in the pads. It's all that interaction happens via some source control system, right? So you have a story set up for that. And that, again, all feeding back into sort of, it sounds like at Mozilla, you'd sort of mentioned this, that a lot of your applications, especially like Django applications, had a certain kind of structure and style that, that the development engineering organization had sort of agreed on. So it sounds to me, just based on what you've said, you know, there's a list of things that before you really, if you have those things set up beforehand, you're going to have better success, whatever tool you end up picking or rolling it out, because those sorts of things are kind of the foundation for doing this successfully. Is that, would that be an accurate way to kind of summarize yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I think the important thing when looking at sort of like thinking, well, what can PaaS do for me is, is, is to look at it as uh, there are a certain number of sort of patterns and abstractions that a PaaS like a Heroku or a Staccato or a Cloud Foundry can give you. And sort of like, you know, how can those abstractions help me? You know, like, like to me, uh, PaaS is, is a really powerful tool to help create an environment of self-service because that's where I see sort of the future of a lot of operations is in building self-service tools, building platform tools, you know, not just sort of like, you know, application runtime as a service, but there are other things like metrics sort of as a service, right? Uh, we're doing yeah, a lot of stuff a with... Graphite and StatsD. Sentry is another one that we're doing. It's a it's a open source application exception tracking, kind of like Exceptional.io or Hoptoad or some of those are familiar mm, with that. Okay. We're building that in-house, right? It, uh, we're also building Logstash as another one. Our Jenkins setup is actually uh, mostly self-service. Developers can go build whatever jobs they want. And I'm actually spending a certain amount of time on trying to scale that out, trying to integrate Vagrant and LXC more with it. Uh, so that developers don't need to ask IT if they want another library installed in the build environment, things like that. So, so there are a number of these these tools, but I think the overall idea is building um, scalable self-service tools that developers can use to get metrics, monitoring, data services, be able to deploy their code. And so that's that's where you want to focus at first is look at you know like okay what are the what are the patterns that I could use to improve the developer experience and the overall IT experience, and then we're all delivering business value. And potentially a pass in a box might be what you want, but potentially it might just be adopting a couple of tools from open source or building a couple of tools in-house 
that give you those abstractions and services. So let me ask you this. Uh, how big is the support team that is supporting sort of the, the PaaS part? I mean, I know you have an IT team, and that's going to be obviously larger than those responsible for the PaaS. But I mean, someone wondering, you know, okay, well, let's have a, a starter PaaS or, a, you know, reasonably, what, what can they expect in terms of the amount of personnel required to sort of support that infrastructure. Sure. So our web ops team is five people, okay. but you know, in addition to building a PaaS, we're also supporting Jenkins, Apache, Elasticsearch, Memcache, Redis. You know, a lot of a lot of other services. Our load balancers. So, what would you estimate, like, like in terms of, like I said, I, I mentioned IT, right? Yeah. And I know they're responsible for other things. So, like, the people directly responsible for sort of supporting the PaaS across cross functionally. How many people? You know, how many resources? Would you guesstimate it sort of takes full time resources, assuming that you know you're not working on it full time, right? So just to give it an idea, I'm just yeah, curious. probably a couple, two to three. Um, two to three, okay. You know, because uh, for a PaaS, right? Say you're even gonna you know you know you're gonna use one of the PaaS in a box things. Uh, you know, you're gonna need hardware, you're gonna need DNS, you're gonna need potentially a hypervisor. So you know, you figure there's probably like one person providing the infrastructure, and then you know, one to two people actually building and helping run the PaaS. Because there's sort of a combination, right, of you learning the platform, you're learning its documentation, right. how to run it. But then also you've got to kind of help developers get started. So you're sort of learning how to use it as a consumer a little bit and then and getting some of the starter docs so you can get them up and running in it. And, and then ideally what you'd see is your developers would help build the user end docs as, as they learn how to use it. So that's actually a really good question. Had you run into, I, I know Mozilla, Mozilla's culture helps with a lot of these things, and it's, that's actually something that's talked about a lot. But have you run into sort of any kind of hurdles or things with sort of developers saying, well, you know, we've done it this way for 10 or 15 years. I want to keep doing it this way. Or, and do you have any suggestions for how to address that or, or what sort of things helped? Or, or even, because, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, developers are often very busy doing whatever they need to be doing in it. They need to learn a whole new deployment stack process to do, do a deployment. If they need to learn a whole new process, whole new tools, there might be a little bit of uh, pushback. Have you found a good way to sort of sell that to everyone and, and get buy-in? So I... Uh, or was it super simple where developers <laughs> like, woo! We're happy. But it's a little bit of both. I mean, there's definitely, there's always some, some uh, we could use the word resistance. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I haven't seen, we haven't seen much resistance from like, oh, we don't want to change that because, you know, in our experience, web developers, which is our main sort of end user for the service, they're already using things like Heroku and .cloud and Engine Yard for their own projects, so they've played with them. And so that user experience of being able to do a few things from a command line is great for them. So, so from that point of view, they're like, they're like, oh yeah, man, this is this is great. You know, this is a this is a natural evolution from the way we've been doing things now with a web interface or running a shell script or filing a bug or whatever it might be. Some of the resistance is definitely, you know, it's probably like it's time. You know, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, that sounds cool, but you know, well, I'm busy. I have goals. I have deadlines, and so. I think one of the one of the key things uh, there is uh, finding a couple people within development who to be advocates because you know there's there's generally within a de any development group there's a couple people that are more on the bleeding edge than anyone else and so like and they're also the most excited to try something new so finding those people and getting them involved early I think is key and I think the other thing that's key is is taking some time to play with your service how the end user would trying to deploy some of the apps and frameworks that that your end users are going to use. And, and getting that set of initial sort of like end user docs uh, written that's customized for your environment, right? Because there's going to be 
the, the generic, you know, here's how you install the client stuff, but sort of tweaking that and putting that in your own internal, your wiki, your knowledge base, however you do that, and, and making that part of your setup investment is, is providing some good end user docs to lower that sort of the friction that there is to adding that new workflow. Oh, I think we may have touched on a good point, though, here, where, uh, with the Brandon mentioned, it, when you already have services like Heroku, when you already have pre-existing services that provide that service that developers are already kind of wild about, they're naturally going to totally be on board because they've seen the advantages of those, the ease of use of those services. I'm wondering if maybe this had happened a few more years ago and somebody would be like, hey, we're going to build platform as a service and everyone would have just, it would have been met, on, you know, to kind of like a mute audience. No one would have been cheering or celebrating. I just think it's interesting that once those external services have been built, like say GitHub or AWS or whatever, then everyone immediately can point to those and be like, we want that. But in the absence of those, I'm curious if people would have been as excited. They would have just been like, what the hell is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't understand this thing. <laughs> yeah, well, there is, I mean, there is, you know, it, it, it's, it, it is the eternal VC joke where, you know, it's, it's, you say something like, it's Pinterest, but for cats. I mean, if you can point at something that's been successful, it's, it's much easier to sell. Mm-hmm. So, something, Brandon, you were, you were saying that, that it sounds like, too, it helps. You were talking about developers have deadlines and goals and things they're working on. It sounds like from the infrastructure or quote-unquote DevOps engineer uh, which that term is always kind of bandied about, but side, part of the problem is to be sensitive and empathetic to that when you're rolling this stuff out because it can be difficult, I know, when you, when you as the engineer building the paths and supporting it, you're really super stoked and excited and you kind of want to dump it on the devs and say, okay, this is what we're doing, everything has to be this in the, in the new paths because you're excited. So it sounds like it's a little bit of give and take to roll projects as it makes natural sense to do so into the the PaaS offering that you're you're working with the development team on, as opposed to saying sort of all projects will now be as of March first in this new new system or whatever. Yeah, it's definitely phased. I think the other thing too is something like this is like don't build it if no one's going to want it. I mean, you have to have a have a sense of uh, you know that your users uh, are going to want something, right? If you're building infrastructure, fundamentally you've got to build stuff that your that your users are going to to want and need. And so there has to be a value add to, you know, asking them to adopt a new way of working. You have to show them why it's going to be better, easier, smarter for them. In our environment, you know, we've sort of evolved our tools to get sort of closer and closer to what I think PaaS is sort of the, the penultimate embodiment of in terms of abstractions. And we certainly could have gone down the road ourselves of building our own tools and building APIs, our own little command line tools. And, you know, instead we sort of looked at what was available and, and chose to, to buy something. Right, there was more turnkey that had a very Heroku-like experience. As Heroku was definitely the uh, the comparison for a lot of our devs. We actually have some of our web dev teams running small tools that, for them, are for our production. Right, they, they rely on it for day-to-day work, for planning, and and things running on Heroku. So we're working with those guys to bring those things in house as sort of some of our first apps to run in more of a lower in our lower SLA cluster, sort of the dev sandbox, non-mozilla.org production kind of cluster that we've built right now. And so we, we saw a demand. And also, as I mentioned with Project Petrie, right, that was started because we could see, you know, where the industry was going, infrastructure on demand, platform on demand. So we started that as a way to sort of play with these things and see where it was applicable. Because we didn't see it as, as cut and dry, as, you know, tomorrow we switch or anything like that. And it can't, re- can't, really, it can't really be like that with, with any tool. Right. Well, so let me ask you this. You brought up a really good point, and I'm sure people are wondering about this. What, what would you say are the limits of PaaS? Are, are there any? I mean, um, what have you found it isn't a good fit? And I think you referenced a little bit of, 
uh, yeah. a couple of examples, but I would say right now the biggest things that aren't a fit are just certain like apps at certain level of scale. If if you have a, a high database load that, that needs hardware or a heavy CPU load, right? Right now, most of the past stuff is sort of focused on being delivered inside VMs because you know VM VM infrastructure tends to have its own APIs and abstractions that makes it easier to sort of clone and scale and, and be more dynamic. So I think especially in a lot of environments, they, you tend to have single boxes or blades that have a lot more oomph than you can give to a lot of your VMs, especially in terms of either CPU or disk I.O. So I would say certain workloads that are very disk or CPU intensive wouldn't necessarily make the best case for most of the, the PaaS things that are available today. Now, as, as these technologies mature and you're able to deploy app containers to actual bare metal, that can change. But I think it's a lot of the same workloads that may not always make sense to just run in a public cloud. A lot of companies, right, that grew in Amazon, grew in EC2, and then at some point found that, you know what, part of our infrastructure, we're going to move back into a data center, we're going to direct connect into an EC2 region, and then we're going to run, you know, certain layers of the infrastructure in the cloud, dynamic, and other layers are, are hardware. Even Netflix, right, their CDN thing, they're, they're moving st- some stuff back onto hardware. So Well, and I've seen it, one of the things that prompted this question is I've seen it actually applications in Heroku or applications in engineering, you know, applications in a, a service like that. And then the company got to a scale where they decided to run it directly on Amazon with their own infrastructure management and sort of creating a path that way. But kind of the point you were making where it's not so much that they're pulling it necessarily in-house, but they're actually pulling it out of you know, they needed a little more flexibility. Their paths needed Heroku's paths plus like four things, right? And so they, they actually went and it for them it made sense to build that. Yeah, and that's a very I think that's the the common evolution. I think at at some point we all wanna you know, we all want to believe a little bit in, in magic and that there's a silver bullet and that, you know, that, that there's going to be unicorns. <laughs> there's, there's gonna be some abstraction that, that we can just use without any cost. But but really there isn't. There are just certain, you know, there, there are these common patterns and stories of, of scaling. And most a lot of small sites, they start using a ton of abstractions. And then they hit a certain point of scale where those abstractions start to break. So they have to peel back the abstraction and, and then use their own thing. You know, it's with SaaS, with PaaS, with infrastructure, and and so there, there are just yeah, there are definitely some common stories there, and each organization has to, in some ways, go through those growth pains themselves. Well, and also it's dependent. I mean, you know, that there's that line in business about wherever your core business or value add is, that's what you want to be focusing on, and you don't want to be focusing on the other stuff. And and especially in a startup environment or a smaller company environment, you may be pivoting to the right and the left a little bit to find where that sweet spot is. So something that you didn't care about six months ago may actually totally matter a lot now, as an example, right? So that makes a lot of sense. The one thing I actually want to ask you about, since we're talking about limitations, the applications you've been talking about have all been web services. If you've taken a look at this for build farms and and taking it to sort of that level, kind of extending the model outside of web services. So not really. Um, You know, one of our developers kind of has gotten interested in, you know, the idea of potentially using PaaS to do uh, sort of like pull request builds, um, mm-hmm. you know, using it as, as for throwaway containers because there's a HTTP API that all the interaction for the service is done through. So, you know, that abstraction provides a sort of a potential for, yeah, just disposable environments. So it's really, you know, similar to a lot of people are using Vagrant in their, uh, in their CI suite. You know, or what Travis CI does, right? Everything is mm-hmm. is built in these boxes that are then thrown away. So having a platform as a service infrastructure available within your organization, there is potentially some synergy there to hook up your built environment to it and use that 
as a way to have disposable containers. You run a you run the build in it. You know the application starts up, run your integration tests, acceptance, whatever, and throw it away at the end. So so that's where I see uh, some potential. Uh, for use, just because it's providing that API abstraction to be able to get a runtime, get uh, maybe a MySQL database and a memcache service, or MongoDB or Redis or you know Postgres, any of those things, uh, very quickly, um, and but, have them come and go. Right, but I, I was actually more directly asking like uh, building Firefox bits and and that kind uh, of where there's no MySQL involved. There's no. It's like here's Visual Studio and have you looked at that, uh, that or, or thought about that? Is there any kind of uh, research into that? No, no, I think the uh, we have that's not really come up. I think the abstraction level of most PaaS offerings is too high for that. Uh, we actually have moved a lot of our uh, Windows Server and Linux builds into AWS, though. Oh, okay. Uh, as, as, as you know, that the pattern of uh, disposable servers for builds definitely is a smart one, but um, the additional abstractions that the PaaS offer are sort of unnecessary, but we have Actually, there's been a couple of good blog posts about that from uh, John Odwin, who runs our release engineering team, on how we've moved stuff in and how we actually reclaimed a lot of hardware for OS X builds and for like Windows 8, you know, things that you can't get on Amazon mm. or other cloud providers. We reclaimed hardware for those by moving, uh, you know, the common Linux and Windows server builds into the cloud. Right. Okay. Oh, you're actually talking about the the build system platform as you know platform service. I actually tried at one point to build a poor man's platform as a service for builds to get around certain build system limitations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, say machines weren't being utilized well, and so I wanted it to dynamically spin up VMs for builds and build the entire environment, Visual Studio, everything, either from an image or install, <clears throat> to do that whole thing. And I've, I, that's, I haven't heard anyone bring that up since, until Travis CI came along. And when they, when they hit, I was like, well, damn, they've, they figured it out. Like they, granted, I was trying to do this with Windows build systems at the time, right. um, but I thought uh, it was, it was weird because three years ago, I was trying to solve that problem, and no one seemed interested, and I was kind of disappointed. Well, on Windows, it's always more complicated than it has to be. <laughs> it's, it's, always little, yeah, it's always a little bit more complicated. Yeah. I, I find it, I've, I've thought that question interesting because I I'm, haven't really seen anyone, again, Travis CI being the big one in, in the room with, with doing that kind of treating builds as a as a kind of a service. Right. I think uh, definitely, like, you know, like from sort of, we'll call it cloudifying your builds, if you will. <laughs> I would definitely say, you know, an infrastructure style service would make a lot more sense to couple with builds than actually going up to the platform layer. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's usually because you know you have such specific needs usually with, with you know, configurations and environments. Well, so let me ask you this, not directly related to PaaS at all. Uh, so we mentioned earlier that you host HangOps. Uh, I actually didn't I saw the hashtag on Twitter, and I'm like, I don't know what that is. So why don't you tell listeners what that is and what that's all about? Sure, yeah. So this is something uh, it's been really interesting for me to see evolve. So this was about last July. I was a few months into working from home for Mozilla, and uh, I'm pretty good friends with Jordan Sissel. He's the author of Logstash. Mm-hmm. And uh, Google Hangouts had just came out around this time, and uh, I wanted to pick his brain about something, so we, we hopped on a Google Hangout and tried it on like a Tuesday, and then like, a couple days later... Uh, we we end up doing the same thing, and I was like, "Hey, you know, we should make this like a regular thing. You know, we should, I don't know, go grab a coffee and we'll just hang out and chat." And we we're like, "Why not make it a public thing?" So what Hangouts sort of turned into is uh, every Friday at it started at two p.m. Pacific. We moved it back to eleven a.m. Pacific after about a month for East Coast people to be able to better make it. The idea is it's an hour long sort of a virtual hangout. Obviously, it's a Google Hangout, but it's sort of a virtual. It's almost like a combination of the hallway track discussion you'd get at a conference. And also a little bit like a user's group, like a round table. Mm-hmm. So um, 
some of some of these sessions that's kind of the term we call each one as a session each session you know some of them have topics right we've had uh, sort of guests come in and talk about like op school and education we've had people come in and talk about you know uh, monitoring and uh, sort of career planning and just a whole whole breadth of um, mostly ops focused topics and then sometimes it's just a roundtable like last week we met on Friday and it was just uh, you know hey what's going on we ended up spending a lot of time talking about security actually yeah. <laughs> and like, like trying to do and so yeah so it, it meet, we meet every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific uh, usually uh, hangops.com hangops on Twitter is where we post things uh, we have a Google Hangout uh, we use the Google Hangout on the air feature so it streams live on YouTube and then the videos automatically then get re-encoded and posted to YouTube. We have an IRC channel on Freenode as well where pe people that maybe can't join the Hangout come and, and post questions. And So yeah, it's become an interesting little sort of a virtual users group community and nice. um, it's very ops heavy. I'd like to see, you know, other groups, more devs, QA, security come and, come and join in and I'm sort of like trying to reach out into people in other communities to pull in guests. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, well, it's, it, it's yeah. kind of hit the nail on the head with with one of the issues where, and this has been in the news lately, uh, working from home and how some you know isolating that can be sometimes. And so it's it's uh, nice to see you tackling that problem. It's a, it's a problem Yahoo engineers don't have anymore. But right, well, it, it was it's been interesting because it really kind of fell into it, and how um, popular it's gotten has surprised me. You know, about a month, a little over a month ago. Puppet Labs approached me, you know, they said, hey, you know, we'd love to, uh, you know, have uh, James Turnbull come on and talk about Logstash. That one made a lot of sense because Jordan's the other sort of host. Um, and then, you know, we had uh, Gene Kim and Jez Humble and a couple of people on talking about the Phoenix Project the week after that. And it's just sort of been interesting to see, like, you know, people that, like, you know, I look up to in the industry, like, hey, I don't want to come on your thing. And I'm just, I'm kind of like, oh, this is my little <laughs> thing. And and so, but I think it, it like it's it's struck a chord with uh, with a lot of people. Most people go to conferences and it's like, oh, the hallway track was the best. And going out to dinner with people. And, and I think this provides a lot of that same experience. And I'm actually looking, hopefully this month, I have a couple of people that want to start a, in, uh, like a European time-friendly one, sort of branching oh, out. So that's the other thing. It's exactly. interesting, you know. Yeah, that's always hard. I was going to say, I don't, I don't, it doesn't strike me as a surprise that Hangops is such a, such a success for the, the sole reason that, in, at least in my kind of like the op side of stuff that I've done, I always feel, I've always felt very isolated when I've been doing those, at least within my, my organization. It's only been me and like, you know, the two other people or three other people. And so having a wider audience, it doesn't seem like uh, ops folks outside of conferences get, like, there's not, like, at least locally I haven't seen any of these, but, like, ops meetups. Now, there are DevOps ones now, but there, have, there hasn't been, like, a strong culture of, like, how do we run these things, how do we do these, and it's, it's just much stronger on the dev side. Um, so I, I, when I saw the Hangop stuff, I was really excited because I was like, oh, a bunch of ops people are going to get together, and there won't be any, I mean, there will be devs there, but it won't be, the, the mindset will be dramatically different. It won't be, like, just going to a meetup and just kind of, like, you know, staring at your shoes. Right. Well, to be fair, I mean, a lot of that stuff is usually uh, tool-based, though. I mean, even, but the sole exception I can think of is DevOps meetups, really, because... I mean, even back when I was just straight up ops, there were meetups. There was like a works for your users group and stuff like that, and that was pretty ops heavy. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't pointed at developers at all. And there's here in town is an OpenStack users group, and I can bet that no developer is going to be caught dead at that. <laughs> just saying. So I think that what what it really is is that it's more tool based, and and honestly, a lot of ops is still living in the basement. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I work there, right? I understand this. And it's hard <laughs> enough for me to get out 
and and go to meetups and and I like them and so I, I think it's really tough for folks to get out and the thought of actually starting them up is is pretty intimidating I would think too in a lot of ways. Well, uh, people that are interested in that can go check out. We'll post a link in the show notes too. It can check that out and check out the. We'll find the YouTube links for it and we'll post those as well so you can check out the previous one. Sounds like there were some definitely interesting topics. Brandon, you'll have to come back and let us know how your PaaS deployment goes once you've got those first initial apps out. We uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us tonight. Yeah, absolutely. It's been here. I've a big, been a big fan of the show, and I um, thought a lot of what uh, I've been working on with this stuff and what I've been seeing here parallels a lot of what it seems like your audience is interested in, so I appreciate you bringing me on. Yeah, yeah. It was great. Great, great information. And uh, we'll be back in a moment here on The Ship Show. Welcome back to the ship show. So for our last segment, uh, tonight we thought we'd bring back the uh, comment block segment. We did one of these a few episodes ago where we uh, kind of did a, a, a commentary on a topic that was important to one of us. And uh, Sasha, you read uh, a blog post from Etsy's Rafe Colbert about not getting stuck, and that struck a chord with you. And so uh, why don't you tell us about that post? I thought it was interesting. A big part of it is because there are a lot of legitimate, I don't know if complaint is the word, but a lot of folks often are disappointed that what you see in presentations are the shiny parts, right? The, this is how awesome we are, and 10 deploys a day, 50 deploys a day, we are awesome and everything is perfect, and don't you want to be just like us? You want to be just like Facebook, you want to be like Netflix, you want to be like Etsy. And in some ways you do, but what you don't always see is that in the background, behind the scenes, it's hard what they're doing. And the other thing that you that people don't talk about is that continuous integration and continuous delivery are things that require you to have a different attitude and a different mindset about how you do things. And that if you think about pushing code in chunks of two weeks or two months worth of work, of course, continuous delivery is not going to be what you want to be doing. But instead... What he talks about is really interesting for me because it, it brings up the idea that in general what you want to do is you want to be able to think about the code that you're writing and the tasks that you're doing in very small pieces so that they can be reviewed easily so that you can think about them ahead of time and figure out how to execute them in a way that's non-destructive to existing site activities. And so he talks about making a space in existing code where they can write some conditionals and set a flag in the database that will allow them to push things to production without them actually being visible at first. And what this also does is it makes it so that your teammates can actually review the code in chunks that are understandable to them. And if there's an issue, if there's a problem, if they see something, it's easier to catch when you're looking at maybe a half a page worth of code as opposed to an entire module's worth of code. What this also does is it requires developers to have a different kind of mindset in that you can't hold your code close to your chest. You can't cling to it. You can't be emotionally attached to it until it's perfect. You have to be willing to offer it up in appetizer bites to your teammates instead. A lot of this is really important because I think people often consider continuous delivery to be a similar implementation to large release, and it's not. It's different in a lot of ways, and that's important. And that post was Don't Get Stuck by uh, Rafe Colbert, and we'll link to it in the show notes. So I wanted to mention once again, we have started a uh, DevOps and Release Engineering Events calendar. You can uh, check that out at theshipshow.com slash events. And if there's events that aren't on the calendar, we actually got tweeted a couple of them. You can always tweet us at Ship Show Podcast. I got those added uh, this week. Uh, and we'll keep updating those. In fact, uh, I'm looking forward to the DevOps Days uh, Silicon Valley or Mountain View. I don't know which one it is, but they just announced those are coming up soon. And the register or the call for papers is over. So I'm like, okay, yeah, 
That'll oh, be, is it? Yeah, that'll, and that, that'll actually be, I think, my first DevOps days. I don't know if that's the one that's co-hosted right after Velocity. It is here, yeah. Yeah, well, it's here, but I don't know if it's right. If it's really it, it does, Velocity. it piggybacks is right it, at the yeah, other okay. side of Velocity. So, so it's that one, yeah. So I've I'm, I'm been watching the hair trigger registration opening for that one. But anyway, that's on the events calendar. Go check that out, shipshow.com slash events. As I mentioned, you can follow us and tweet us uh, on Twitter at Shipshow Podcast. Or you can also email us, crew at theshipshow.com, for anything that you want to get uh, to, to us. We'll be doing a DevOps Dear Abby. We actually got a couple DevOps Dear Abbeys via email, uh, and we always are, are looking for more. So feel free to send those to either the Twitter account or via email, and we will Dear Abby them in a future show. So from somewhere in the Silicon Valley, this is Paul Reed signing off. Silicon Valley. This is Sasha Bates signing off. Uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.